Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. My name is Kev Lotchen. I'm joined today by the familiar voices of Elizabeth Pearson. Hello. And Ian Todd. Hello. So, coming up on today's show, I've got three more questions for these guys and for you, our listeners at home in News Bingo. We're going to hear from the Sky Night TV show's Pete Lawrence. And Ezzy is going to be speaking to Annabelle Cartwright of Cardiff University about the Venus Hypothesis, which I know nothing about, but I'm pleased it's the Venus Hypothesis. It's a definite arc, or it's the only one. <laughs> <laughs> there are no more hypotheses about Venus. There are no more hypotheses about Venus. Um, very briefly, give us a clue. What's that about? Uh, the Venus Hypothesis is the idea that maybe life didn't just start on Earth. Maybe it started on other planets, including Venus. Intriguing. So we'll hear more about that a bit later. First, we're going to crack straight on with some news, I think. Um, what's been going on? Well, I think the biggest story that we've had in the past couple of months has been the news that we found the nearest planet outside of our solar system in Proxima Centauri B. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> uh, Proxima Centauri is our nearest star. Yes, uh, it's a red dwarf, um, which is 4.2 light years away. Yeah, that sounds about uh, right. Yeah, uh, which is, well, we can't get to it right now, but, you know, we're talking light years, not tens of thousands of light years. So it is conceivable that maybe we one day might be able to get a mission to go over there. Maybe one day. Is that likely within our lifetime, do you think? Um, depends how long you're planning on living, I think. <laughs> you might you might see it launch, probably won't see it get there. Or unless we have kind of an alien come and visit and give us some, you know, highly advanced technology, maybe. Yeah. We can but hope. Mm, yes. Um, but anyway, the what's really exciting about this planet is it is in the habitable zone around Proxima Centauri B. Habitable, of course, doesn't mean necessarily has life, but it has the possibility that it might have liquid water on the surface, and that's quite exciting. Which is the basis for every kind of life we can really possibly guess at. Yes. pretty. It's, it's one of those things that, yes, there might be some form of life out there somewhere that's managed to evolve to be based on silicon or something mm. with methane in their blood, but... We don't know about that. We can't work out how that would work. So we're just going to look for standard old carbon with water, please. Thank you. But isn't part of the problem also, though, that like, um, yeah, because it's it's within like, the habitable zone and it's um, rocky and Earth-like, but part of the problem is that it's um, it's probably being blasted by radiation that would, yeah, that would render it completely uninhabitable. It's, it's in the habitable zone, yeah. but it's only at 0.05 AU. So that's 5% the Earth's sun difference, distance, which is quite close. Um, yeah. Does that so, make a huge difference in radiation terms, even though it's still in the habitable zone? Yeah, it okay. does. Because it's, it's in the habitable zone because the red dwarf is much cooler. So it'll be... It can get much so closer. Temperature before, terms, that's yeah, fine. temperature yeah. is fine, but it's still put, pumping out a, a lot of radiation. And, and when you're that much closer in, um, that could be a problem. And presumably, it's far too early to tell if it has any kind of atmosphere that might be filtering. Yeah, that's that's one of the things they're hoping because it's it's 1.3 Earth masses, which means there's a chance that it's going to have a magnetic field still. Mm. Oh, okay. And if it has a magnetic field, that might be helping to to protect the atmosphere from just getting blasted away. But it, I think. Does it have an atmosphere? And if so, what is that atmosphere is one of the first mm. questions that people are going to be asking as soon as they're, they're training telescopes all over the world on this thing. Um, and that's one of the first questions they've got. I mean, does it, what do we know? I mean, does it even have a mass yet? Um, 1.3 times the mass of Earth? Yeah, about, probably, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think they say at least 1.3. It won't be much bigger. Right. But 
that's that's kind of what they know at the moment. Um, yeah, and there were a few other kind of just facts I kind of noted down because he you knows. Um, the we, we, I do, do love a good fact. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's fact central here now, Kev. Uh, so it, it orbits the star every 11 days, and it orbits 7 million kilometers from the star, which, as Ez said, is 5% of the distance between um, Earth and the sun. Um, so it's hot, that's yeah. what we're saying. <laughs> very, very warm. But whenever oh, uh, it, it's probably tidally locked, like the moon is with yes. Earth. So one side's probably always facing. You see, whenever they... they say, like, it's in the habitable zone. Um, the caveat that always comes after that is it's it's, it's the right distance from the sun, it, from from its star, for, for wa- liquid water to pool on the surface. Is is that is that the only prerequisite for describing something as in the habitable zone, or at, is that just one of many? At the moment, it's pretty much the only one because it's the only one that we can readily get, and it's one of the easiest things to look at. But obviously, if you they look at it and just go, oh, it's not got an atmosphere, um... If it's not got an atmosphere, it's unlikely to have liquid water on the surface still. Um, if at some point in the future they can tell whether or not it's got a magnetic field, that could affect whether or not stuff's habitable. There's a lot of different things that will... It, it's kind of... It's habitable is not from the is not the same as could hold life, mm-hmm. if that makes no, sense. No, yeah, it actually does. <laughs> uh, I mean, I assume this will be one of the top targets now for the JWST. Yes. Definitely. Yes. Or I, I was reading a bit about it online, and um, someone suggested the... Um, do you remember the uh, Breakthrough Star shot? Uh, yes. yes. So Stephen yes. Hawking was involved in that, if anyone remembers that. Um, I think it's uh, one of those kind of solar light sails, yes. as they call them. That's, that's a potential candidate, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of... Um, just touch upon how it was actually found, because um, Ez and Eric actually chatting about this earlier on, and it was found by the by the radial velocity method. And I, I kind of had to ask Ez um, what that actually means. I mean, I kind of understand it a bit, but well, absolutely. now we're going to do it again. Ez, yeah. what is the radial velocity method? <laughs> so, radial velocity method um, means that you look for a radial velocity on the star. Basically, you're looking for a wobble. Um, if you've got a planet going around a star, technically they are orbiting around each other, um, but and, and the gravitational pull of the planet just tugs a little bit on the star, and as it's going around, that will look to us from Earth like a bit of a wobble, and we can pick that up by looking for something called its Doppler shift. So as uh, something that's emitting light moves, that light... Uh, gets shifted a little bit. It either becomes a bit red if it's moving away or a bit blue if it's coming towards you. And you can measure this very slight shift and work out how much it's wobbling by. And from that, you can work out if there's something going around it, how big it is, sometimes whether one or more things is going around it. So would you would astronomers see that as kind of what they'd see if it's wobbling, you see it go from red to blue to red to blue, mm, and yes. then presumably the bigger the thing, the more red before it goes blue and back it's, again. It's, that? Uh, so the time it takes to go from red to red, that's a complete that's, cycle. That's yeah. one complete cycle, mm. um, and uh, the more that it gets shifted um, will depend on how big the thing, how big the gravitational pull it's getting. Okay. I mean, you are right, Ian, because a lot of times when we hear about uh, planets being found, it's so often the tr- transit method because they're mostly by Kepler. I think mm-hmm. Kepler it has the lion's share of them, and particularly Pretty when much. it did that. Yeah. What was it? One thousand and twenty-four planets in one go thing. Everyone thought this was a massive typo, and so no, no, we really have done it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Remember the press release for that one had to say no, not a typo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Uh, but interestingly, the the, the uh, search for the for the planet was part of uh, ESO's pale red dot campaign. I don't know if anyone kind of followed that, um, mm-hmm. but essentially it was a study to find the planet because they thought the planet might be going around the star. But it was they were basically going to broadcast everything via social media, so that their whole progress. So if you if you go into the um, ESOPLRed.campaign website, I think you can you can go back and, and look at all the different stages of the yeah. of the search. So that, that's actually quite it's, interesting. It was it was a brave move on their part. It's like we're going to to show the public how we we do science and how we discover planets, um, which was great because it worked. But it, it they set themselves up if there was nothing there. But so. they did this whole campaign to find a planet around Proxima. Yes. So they knew or they thought they knew there was one there in the first place. There's, it's not a random Yeah, there's been there's been signs that there's a planet there for quite a while. I think they announced that they discovered it um a couple of years ago and then went, Oh no, we haven't. Um but this time they are pretty sure it's there. They've done a lot of work on it and they've really made sure that they know what they're doing. Um, and they've taken repeat readings of their repeats of their repeats of their repeats. And this one's, you know, more real than Planet Nine, of course, by this yeah. point. Yeah, good point. Mm. So, shall we move on? There's one other thing we have to mention, yes. which is uh, our long-lost lander has been found. They found Feli! Yay! Oh, it's lying on the comet with its leg up in the air. <laughs> Graceful. <laughs> yeah. um, it literally has been under a rock for the past Nearly two years. Mm, yep. Yeah, it's yeah. It seems to be what happened was that it was it was going along, sort of it bounced, and then it started moving along the the surface horizontally until it hit something, which was a big boulder, and then it fell into its shadow, where it has stayed for the next ooh, two years. Has it been? Yeah, two years. Yes. Well, November's the anniversary. Yeah, two so. years. Yeah, exactly. So, are you saying it did that very old cartoon thing of it flies into a wall, smack? And then peels off and just. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it does look like, yeah. So. And in all Isa's Isa's things, they always have the wee uh, anthropomorphized uh, cartoon of of the of the orbiter and the lander. So it kind of uh, yeah. Yeah. As, as soon I as I saw that it, cartoon, I thought it was great. As soon as I saw that, I was imagining it just sitting on its side, going ah, and flailing its arms in the air. <laughs> and for those of you listening, Ezzy flailing her arms—that was very, you know, she got well into it in that moment. <laughs> Yeah, but um, as, as I understand it, the, the, the reason it went into hibernation was because it fell down the crack, so it wasn't getting solar power? Yes, so it had 60 hours of battery um, on it when it landed. In case something like this happened, it, it could could go for a while. Did all of its core science missions, got all the data it needed, um, but then it was supposed to sit there and charge up and be able to do it a couple more times. Unfortunately, not so much, because it's right in the middle of a massive shadow. And you, you've seen the photo, uh, I assume, yeah. both of you, because it's not very far into this shadow, is it? It's no. Like you can see the light tantalising. It's yes, almost like... You couldn't have just bounced just a little bit further. No. <laughs> Was it intact when it... Imagine it like hitting this rock and peeling off and falling down. It's still in one piece. It, it looked fairly in one piece. Um, they, they on the, some of the pictures, they kind of like circle what all of the different bits are, and it, it seems that like all of the, the, the vital bits were still there. Amazing. So close, so uh, close. I was kind of reading about the, the, the actual hunt for it, and apparently, like in the images that uh, Rosetta's Osiris camera had taken, Philae was just uh, like a, a few pixels across in those images. So I, I actually kind of lo- looked up the measurements, and Philae itself is about one meter cubed mm. in size, and the small lobe of the comet alone, which is where it ended up, is um, 2.5 kilometers cubed. 
So mm. that's kind of a reason. I suppose that explains why it took them so long to find it. Mm. Yeah, well, they also had to wait because it's at the moment Rosetta is is getting re- ready for the end of its mission. Yeah. It's getting ready to land in adverted commas crash um, <laughs> into the surface, and it's get it's doing some close flybys at the moment. So. The one that that image that found feel I was taking at was only 2.7 kilometers over the surface, which is Nothing not real. far, seeing no. as most of the time it was at, you know, several tens, if not hundreds of kilometers away. You imagine I've even imaged it before and then not, mm. you know, not it's been able to It's just, oh, it's that pixel there. Uh, <laughs> um, when Rosetta uh, lands on uh, <laughs> on the comet. Is it going to be doing any science? Is that uh, landing going to give us any science? Was it just cleaning up and get it that's, out of the way? Uh, that, that's the, the main reason why they want to put it on the comet is just to make sure it's not going to fly off and hit something else important. Um, not that the comet's not important, but it's, it's also it will be taking measurements and taking readings right up until the last moment. As long as it possibly can, it will be sending data back home. Yeah, and then of course, even though the mission the mission itself has ended, then the entire team kind of starts concentrating on the analyzing the data really for the next few years. Mm-hmm. So it's not really as if the mission the mission the mission proper, I suppose, has ended. Yeah, but, we'll, uh, we'll still be hearing news from from Rosetta for the next decade or more, I should imagine. Yeah, if Cassini is anything to go by, and it's yeah. ilk. I mean, you know, there's new data coming out all the time, isn't there? Mm. Right. That's going to be a big challenge for them. Right now, it's a challenge for you. Yay. So, it's that time of the podcast, Kev. It's that time of the podcast where we play News Bingo. I love News Bingo. Good. I'm really glad. I'm really pleased. I'm so happy. <laughs> you know, I'm really happy, actually. I know it sounds really insincere. I've said too many things, but I'm really happy. <laughs> so, News Bingo is where I read you out um, three questions based on the latest space news stories, and you have to guess what the big story I'm talking about actually is. Now, you both have pads in front of you and pens, so you can write your answers down so you don't kind of uh, crib off each other. But also that means our listeners at home can, you know, have a bit of time to think about it as well. Mm-hmm. So are you both ready? Shall we both crack on? Yeah. Brilliant. All right. So speaking of space missions, on the 8th of September, NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft launched successfully. But where is it going and why? Right, I know this one. It's a good start. Your pens work. Very good start. Uh, <laughs> So what do we think? Um, it is going. It's traveling to asteroid Bennu to collect a sample of the asteroid and return it to Earth. Absolutely, yes. Um, I've put Comet Bennu in case it kills us all um, and sample return. <laughs> it's definitely an asteroid rather than a comet, but you are right. That's one of the reasons they've picked I it. I said comet. I know it's an asteroid. That's my bad. Sorry. <laughs> um, that is one of the reasons they picked it, because uh, they were looking for a particular type of comet, one that has potential organic uh, molecules on it, one that comes close enough to Earth, one that's orbit doesn't vary too much, so it gets enough sun and doesn't do a feli. Um <laughs> <laughs> do a feline. <laughs> do a feline. <laughs> I think every time you say a panel fails, it's like, yeah. let's do a feline. Uh, and it has been slow enough that it could actually get close enough without get, you know, getting smacked in the solar panels and be sent whizzing away. But the last thing was because, they, you're right, there's a risk it's going to come close enough to Earth to impact us, mm. but not until the end of the 22nd century. I think they, they did, uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, they released some new new numbers that they've been monitoring because I think it passed by quite recently. Uh-huh. Um, and they said, actually, we're pretty sure it won't hit then. It'll come close. It might be a bit hairy, but 
we should be okay. Will it be one of the ones crossed. that is likely to come between us and the moon? Because there's been a few of those. I think that was the the prob- the, the thing that they were worried about, because I can't remember exactly how big it is, but it's it's kilometres rather than metres. Um, which is That's when, good. If it was metres, that would be yeah. <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, that's, that's, that's when you start getting worried. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, I, I can't imagine it, like, you, you're the space rock. If you're, you know, I'm imagining the um, the Rosetta kind of theme of space where everything's amphiphomorphized. So you've got a space rock and it's seen this goalpost of the moon and the earth. It's like, I'm going to go straight through the middle. <laughs> it's like, no, don't do that. It's terrifying. It's too close. You'll never make it. Um, do, do you know how it's going to collect samples, this one? It's it's going to reverse hoover them. I, yeah, you see, that's exactly <laughs> it. When I was uh, making my notes, I was looking at it going, this is a vacuum cleaner. Yes. It's perfect. In reverse, it's but, brilliant. Yeah, it, it blasts out, I think it's nitrogen gas, which kind of like floofs. <laughs> like Science makes a, words here, yeah, people. Yeah, makes, makes a massive cloud of, of the debris come up and then it should... Yeah, and, yeah, captures yeah. them. I think it's got enough to do it three times. Yeah, three attempts, mm. that's right. Um, so, bonus point. Oh. Osiris Rex is not the only sample return mission that's underway at the moment. There's another one. So, what is it and where is that one going? Oh, you're going to make me remember its name now, aren't you? Okay. Ah. Ian? Unless it is, I want to say ExoMars, even though that, no, that's probably wrong, because mm-hmm. um, we're not talking planetary, so yeah, don't know. It's the Japanese one. It is the Japanese one. It's the one. second one. It is the second one. It, I don't think, is it Hayabusa? It is. Yes. Nice. Hayabusa 2. Um, there's also rumblings that China might be um, planning on spending a um, one to the moon soon. Yeah, China's one's going to be Chang'e 5, I think. Yes, that's that's the plan, but but they're being a bit tight-lipped about it. Mm. Um, I don't know where Hayabusa's going, though, other than another asteroid. It's another asteroid, uh, not a comet, called Ryugu, or possibly... Ryugu, my pronunciation isn't going to be spot on there, uh, launched in 2014 due to return samples by 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, this one's going to be slightly different. It has got a little bomb called an explosive <laughs> penetrator, and it's going to fire it at this asteroid to blow a little bit of stuff up, which we'll then collect. Oh, that's uh, cool. Because <laughs> yeah, I, 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 uh, before I kind of really researched it, I kind of wondered, oh, well, are all these missions quite similar? And it turns out, no, this one's just going to blow a chunk off of uh, its asteroid. An asteroid, which, by the way, is estimated to be worth $95 billion. There's a lot of money in the asteroid belt. Mm. Like, a, a lot. The asteroid is, is that amount? So if you could somehow... Yeah. If you could somehow mine the whole thing, mm. uh, of which there's a feature about an October issue, <laughs> then, uh, <laughs> nice. then uh, you could... Um, yeah, you get... It's a big deal. Um, but I didn't. I didn't realise they were so different. Actually, the different uh, kind of classes of asteroids. So I think Bennu is the one where you might find a lot more organic materials, mm. uh, whereas this one seems to have a lot more resources, so to speak. Um, yes. Yeah. There's there's some which are basically pure gold. Well, not pure gold, but have a lot of gold in them. Yeah. The, the most expensive one is several trillion. It might be. Mm. Tens of trillions. It's a lot of trillions. Yeah. There's zeros Somebody, beyond. Somebody's worked it out, and it's something like there's, there's about 600 septillion, which is a number I'm not even sure exists because <laughs> uh, it's too big. But there's a lot of money there. Right, so you ready for question two? 
Yes. Yes. Jolly good. So, what might you expect to erupt from an ice volcano? I'm, I'm guessing that's not the obvious answer. Okay. <laughs> um, so, if you were going to say icebergs or, you know, big chunks of ice, that would be completely not right. Mm. What did you say? Um, I have just put watery liquid. <laughs> I've I've put methane or uh, ammonia, all of those kind of nice organic-y, liquidy type stuff. Yeah, I mean, so I'm sad to say it, but Ian's watery liquid kind of wins it. Um, so there can be ice in there, but it tends to be tiny little particular bits of ice, and it's mostly a watery fluid. You're right because it is uh, volatiles of ammonia and methane, like you said, as instead of uh, molten rock or indeed glaciers, tend to get spurted out. But the reason this is back in the news is because there might be a ice volcano on or a cryovolcano to give it its uh, more serious name on Ceres. Um, do you guys know where? Ahunamons? Yes, that's it. Four kilometre high, Ahunamons, thought to be your everyday variety mountain, actually maybe a volcanic dome. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one's considered a bit special, wasn't it? Do I get a, a bonus point for saying Ahunamons? Uh, you can, I'll tell you what. <laughs> oh, it's like that, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. no like you can it. have a bonus point if no. Ezzy can tell me why Ahunamons is special in the kind of the pantheon of cryovolcanoes. I don't know why it's a pantheon. They don't have names. Like. <laughs> um, I have no idea. So the reason why it's a bit special is because they kind of think that most uh, cryovolcanoes, they, astronomers think that most cryovolcanoes have to be found on rocky um, worlds. And Ceres is a bit rocky, but it's also very salty and very muddy. So... You know, I mean, one of the quotes in the press releases is like, there's nothing quite like it anywhere else in the solar system. It's a pretty um, unique kind of place. And it's also it's also been considered quite exciting because it's quite young. Uh, a few hundred million years old at its youngest, possibly up to a billion, but still in the context of four and a half billion years of the solar system, mm. really young. And you kind of you look at it and go, oh, there's no meteor damage here. Mm. Um, <clears throat> that's why they think it's young. It also means it the uh, geological process behind it happened quite recently. Yeah, I mean, because I, I remember reading about that story and one of the things they were kind of saying was that it's series is very geologically active. Mm. So that is that potentially why such a young dwarf planet was able to construct that, something like that? It potentially is. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff they're saying about series that is a bit confusing because it's not saying oh this cryovolcano is linked to the bright spots but there's obviously say something going on that might explain both of them and it's just really interesting you compare say Mercury there was a this isn't formed part of news bingo but there was another story quite recently that Mercury's volcanism just ceased quite early on so mm-hmm. to have this dwarf planet that um, is quite active quite late it's just intriguing yeah um, it's it. there's things stop their volcanism at all kinds of different times and Doesn't that's one of the big questions: is 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 why this thing? Why did Mercury stop after a billion years, but but Venus only stopped a few? I can't remember when Venus stopped. It wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't and, that long and, yeah. ago comparatively. Um, but this isn't the only dwarf planet with uh, cryovolcanoes, if I remember correctly. Pluto as well, I think, has them, isn't it? Uh, Pluto, I think they they definitely saw signs that there was something going on there because there was the ah uh, the heart. Um, Yes, uh, heart-shaped region, heart-shaped Tom region. Tom Part Regio. Tom Part Regio, that's the cool. um, 
and something's going on there because it's all nice and shiny and new. So maybe there's some kind of volcano volcanism going on there. Excellent. Right. Question three. Can we do it? Good to go. Um, so, 19th century French astronomer Urban Leverrier. Ah. He's most famously known for almost but not quite discovering Neptune. So can you tell me what other planet, which turned out not to exist, he hypothesized should be within the solar system? Uh, it's that one I can't remember the name of. I oh, see Ian's got it already because I can read upside down. <laughs> right, Ian, put us out of our misery and is out of her misery as well. Uh, Vulcan? Vulcan. Yeah. That was it. Yes. Um, it was wasn't it essentially um, a way of explaining there was something there was something with Mercury's orbit that they couldn't explain, which was later explained by Einstein's general theory of relativity. But at the time, it, it being in the mid nineteenth century, the the best they could come up with was the, there must be another planet in between Mercury and the Sun. Mm. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, the reason we've been talking about this a bit is because obviously the Star Trek 50th anniversary passed about a week ago. The first episode of that broadcast oh. on the 8th of September 1966 and Vulcan as well as being this planet in the Star Trek universe is also the name Leverrier gave to this phantom planet he believed must be between the Sun and Mercury. Um and Ian, as you say, is it the quirk of Mercury's orbit? It seems to move a bit faster during its perihelion than it should do, given what they knew of physics at the time. So, because um, Leverrier had so accurately predicted that Neptune existed, and I think they found it within a few, like, you know, it's almost exactly pinpoint where it should be, as soon as he said, oh, there's another planet here. I call it Vulcan. Everyone went, well, yes. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a period when it was basically, it was accepted, like official lists would have mentioned it as a planet in the solar system. I mean, mm, maybe, yes, absolutely. Maybe only a decade or so, but there was a time when that was that was the case. Um, I guess, I mean, it's kind of the similar situation we might find ourselves with Planet Nine at the moment, if, yeah. it kind of ha- if that carries on. Yes. Because, um, you know, we think there's one there. We haven't got around to giving it a name yet. Mm. Um, that was much easier back in Leverrier's day, wasn't it, naming things? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Just pick someone from Greek or Roman mythology. There you go. Well, yeah, exactly. No, so this leads on to there's a bonus point for this one as well. Mm. Why did you name it Vulcan? Any ideas? Uh, I'm assuming it's because it was so close to the sun. They thought it must have been raging hot. Because... Uh, Vulcan, um, otherwise known as Hephaestus, was the blacksmith of the gods, so spent all of his time in the forge and it was very warm. Yes, as well as being the blacksmith, he was also the god of fire, <laughs> which is why, because they assumed Vulcan would have to be um, basically a hellscape. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, it uh, would be a bit toasty. I, I've kind of pegged this to you having three all, actually. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. So I need to prepare a lightning round question. <laughs> But not this time. <laughs> okay, we'll just take that for now. <laughs> you can take it for now. Uh, right, we're going to move on. And next we're going to hear from the Sky Night TV show's Pete Lawrence, who is going to be telling us a bit about occultations in general, what they are, and also one particularly good one involving the moon and the Hyades Open Cluster in Taurus, which you can see this month. 
When one celestial body appears to move in front of another one, so the other one is completely hidden from view, that's an event known as an occultation. And where the body doing the hiding is the moon, it's known as a lunar occultation. Now you might be forgiven thinking of the moon being big and bright in the night sky, that occultation or lunar occultations of stars are pretty common but in reality, they're not that common. Um, and the reason for this is simply because the moon's apparent size in the sky is only half a degree across, and that actually presents quite a small profile to cover up the brighter stars. Now, when you get to witness a lunar occultation of a star, it's actually quite an amazing thing to see. It might not sound amazing on paper, but believe you me, it is quite exciting to watch. You're looking at the star, and then in the an instant the star's light will just go out just like that. Now the reason why this happens is that uh, the moon's edge is pretty sharp, the moon has no atmosphere and the star is just a single point-like source of light. So as the moon's edge gradually moves closer and closer to that star you get this sense of anticipation and then suddenly it goes out in an instant. Now if you blink at the wrong time you'll actually miss it. Now, there are two types of occultation disappearance involving the moon. There's an occultation disappearance involving the bright edge of the moon, and that's when the moon is in its waning phases. And there's also an occultation disappearance which occurs when the moon is in its waxing phases. And when that occurs, it's the dark edge of the moon which appears to cover the distant stars. Now, of course, as well as occultation disappearances, you also have occultation reappearances, where the uh, star will appear to re-emerge from behind the moon. And they can be fascinating as well, because you're looking at the edge of the moon with doubt creeping in as to whether you've got the right place that you're looking at, and then suddenly the star will reappear in an instant. And again, like with uh, occultation disappearances, there are two types of reappearances, one from behind the bright lunar limb, and that occurs when the moon is in its waxing phases, and one from behind the dark lunar limb, and that's when the moon is in its waning phases. So are there any good occultations of stars coming up? Well, as luck would have it, yes there are. On the 19th of October, the moon will appear to pass in front of the southern part of the Hyades open cluster. Now, the Hyades is a V-shaped cluster uh, forming the face of Taurus the bull. Now the first event occurs at around 0010 BST, so that's 2310 UT on the 18th technically. Now I say around because the moon is close enough that from different locations in the United Kingdom its position in the sky actually varies a little bit. So that means that it's impossible to give timings or accurate timings for every location across the UK. So 0010 BST, uh, when this star Gamma Tauri, which is the one at the point of the V shape, uh, will disappear behind the moon's bright edge, 
that time is correct for the centre of the UK. So the best way to observe this is actually to go out, say, 10-15 minutes before this time, locate the star, locate the edge of the moon, and then just keep watching until Gamma Tauri actually gets completely occulted. Now, you should be able to see this with binoculars, but it, it can be a bit tricky when it's the bright edge of the moon which you're dealing with. A telescope doesn't have to be a large telescope on a fairly low power is actually a great way to watch and enjoy events like this. Now Gamma Tauri will reappear about an hour later, so that's very convenient, isn't it? At uh, 0110 BST or 0010 UT from behind the moon's dark limb. So you've got about an hour gap from disappearance to reappearance. The next interesting event is the magnitude plus 6.4 star 70 Tauri. And that's uh, closely followed by a slightly brighter star being hidden by the moon, that's uh, mag plus 4.571 Tauri. Now that star will appear to be occulted from a line um, to the north of a line drawn between St. David's and Wales to the Wash. Now along that line, if you happen to be in the right place, you might see the star sort of disappear behind mountains on the moon's edge or reappear in valleys or craters. And that's what's known as a grazing occultation and that can be amazing to watch. The next big event is the double star Theta Tauri. Well, there are two stars here. So the first one, Theta 1, disappears at 0430 BST, and Theta 2 disappears eight minutes later. Now, the brightest star associated with the Hyades, although it's not actually part of the Hyades cluster, it's about half the distance of the cluster itself, is, of course, uh, magnitude plus 0.8 Aldebaran, which is the, the red eye of Taurus the bull. Now, the moon doesn't quite make it to Aldebaran in darkness, but if the sky is very clear, it may be possible to watch the moon approach the star during the day. Now, it's the moon's northern edge, which makes a very close pass of Aldebaran, about um, 0835 BST from much of the UK. And there's a full occultation occurring south of a line from Bournemouth to Cork in the Republic of Ireland. And if you happen again to be on that line, you might see a grazing occultation of Aldebaran. Now, during the day, obviously, it's harder to see stars, but it is possible to see stars. And if you have a bright star like Aldebaran, you should be able to pick it up even with a relatively small telescope. Just use the moon as a guide. So go outside, enjoy this event if it's clear, hopefully, and just watch the amazing sight of our nearest neighbour passing in front of these bright stars and hiding them from view. Good luck. Next up uh, for this month's interview, we'll be talking to Annabelle Cartwright from Cardiff University, and she'll be talking to us about something called the Venus Hypothesis. So this is looking at potentially, um, a, uh, this month they've announced that Venus might have been habitable in the past, might have had liquid water. And so Annabelle's been looking at the possibility that maybe life started on Venus and potentially got transferred over to here. I'm talking to Dr. Annabel Cartwright, who is a reader in astrophysics from Cardiff University, uh, who recently put out a paper about something called the Venus Hypothesis. So, Dr. Cartwright, what is the Venus Hypothesis? Right. Well, one of the, the real puzzles in science, continuing puzzles, is the origin of complex life on Earth. Uh, we know that the simple life evolved almost as soon as the Earth was formed, about four and a half 
million, billion years ago. But then it just sort of sat there, not really making much progress for a very long time until suddenly at around 540 million years ago, suddenly complex life was there. And it, it even really worried Charles Darwin that we went from just the, these sort of mats of very simple life forms on the bottom of the ocean to suddenly trilobites and fish and things with skeletons swimming around in huge variety. It's absolutely sudden. And um, the question is, why did that happen? The, these, all of the um, body plans that we see now in life on Earth, there are 34 different phyla or body plans on Earth. They all appeared during the Cambrian explosion, as it's known. And nothing has ever evolved subsequently. No new body plans. So why was this period so extraordinary? What caused it to start? What caused it to stop? And why has it never been repeated again? And there's been a lot of work gone on over the years to try and explain this with different theories about the oceans changing or something changing, allowing um, predation to start. So this would, this would allow animals to evolve very quickly. But what I've um, noticed is the huge coincidence that just as all of this activity was happening on Earth, all these sudden arrivals of different species, at exactly the same time, Venus was going off like a firework. It was completely resurfacing itself and probably exploding and sending lumps of its crust into Earth-crossing orbits where it could then impact on Earth. So there you're talking about um, intense volcanic activity on Venus? Yes, so um, huge volcanic explosions because Venus, we now believe, started off very much like Earth. It's, it's our twin planet. It started off with oxygen and, and hydrogen and all the elements in the same kind of amounts as we have on Earth and then probably gradually evolved as Earth did, as a water-bearing planet, a habitable water-bearing planet. And recent, uh, the most recent research is showing that this it really seems to be the case. Um, and, and in fact, there's evidence from um, isotopes that we can see from Earth that, that there was liquid water on Venus. So could Venus have been habitable with animals evolving on, uh, on Venus faster than Earth, then it, it reached the end of its habitable period, explosively ejecting life on little lumps of crust, well, quite large lumps of crust, and those then arrived on Earth. And so life literally did just sort of drop out of the sky onto um, the Earth's surface. So this principle, which I believe is called lithopanspermia, of yeah. um, something being transferred from one planet to the other, I've heard about it before with reference to, to Mars, but not before with Venus. Is, is there any reason why nobody's made the connection between those two planets before? I think probably because um, Venus is just so completely uninhabitable now. Um, when, when it resurfaced, um, it lost all of the um, surface rocks that it had at the time. It became very, very hot because um, what's happened on Earth is that all our carbon dioxide has been locked up in rocks, in limestone and chalk and all those rocks. Um, so that if, if, if we had a huge volcano on Earth starting to melt all our limestone, it would release huge amounts of carbon dioxide into our atmosphere. We think that's what's happened on Venus. So Venus now has this huge greenhouse effect. It's terribly thick atmosphere. It's completely uninhabitable. But it wasn't always like that. And that realization that, that it really might have been habitable until quite recently is, is what is new and makes it worth thinking about whether life could have transferred to Earth 
from Venus. Is it possible for life to have, have survived that journey if it did somehow manage to get off of Venus and, and sent on a trajectory towards Earth? Well, in fact, there have been some experiments showing that um, some very primitive life forms on Earth can survive in space. There are things called tardigrades or water bears um, that have actually been exposed um, to the, the vacuum of space on the space station. And there are other very primitive, you know, these are things you can see Cambrian fossils that actually can um, survive in very, very deep hibernating states. They're called diapauses. And they just, they, they go to almost dust. They completely um, desiccate and can survive very um, high levels of radiation and, and very extreme temperatures. In fact, it's quite a mystery, really, why they are so robust. And that's one of the things you would expect because Venus, Venus being very close to the sun would have slowed down. The rotation of a planet is gradually slowed down due to the tidal interactions. And so planets closest to the sun slow down. So you would have had this long day length getting longer and longer. And life forms on Venus would actually selectively evolve the ability to, um, to survive long periods in this deep, dormant state. So if you did have a volcano suddenly erupting or um, the impact of a meteorite suddenly bashing into the dark side of Venus, you would launch rocks into, the, um, uh, into escape velocity and any animals on, on those rocks would be in perfect condition to survive space travel. So it would be as if you had planned it. So is actually in some ways Venus potentially a, a more likely candidate for life starting there than Mars? Well, Venus is, is closer to um, the sun, and therefore, I mean, all three planets, it now seems, would have been water-bearing initially, and who knows, life may have evolved um, on Mars too, but we know that, the, that Mars was dead by a billion years ago. There was no water um, at the time when life arrived on Earth. But Venus, because it's closer to the sun, it's bombarded with more radiation. And again, due to the, the slowing of the rotation, it's lost its magnetic field. And our magnetic field protects us from radiation. So on, on Venus, you've got this heavy bombardment, this heavy radiation. Well, that speeds up evolution. We have to be careful with our astronauts when they're going to Venus or Mars because they're exposed to radiation, which is harmful to, to us but it does actually accelerate mutation rates. So you could see that in the early evolutionary history of Venus, you would expect life to evolve quicker on Venus, and you would expect it to evolve all these fabulous different varieties, many of which are no longer here on Earth. They didn't survive on Earth. But all of those different body plans that evolved on Venus, but not ever subsequently on Earth, would be because of that higher radiation that you got on Venus, but not on Earth. And so this, this theory of lithopanspermia, it's been around for, for quite a few years now. Is it pretty well accepted that life might have started outside of the Earth? Well, it, it seems to be accepted. Um, I, I saw some recent comments um, at the Starmus com conference um, that, that really life could have moved around between the inner planets during the early um, history of the solar system. You know, in that early period when there was a lot of bombardment going on and the life that evolved was very simple life, um, then that, that is the period when, when it, it is suggested that it would have just been transferred within those inner planets quite, quite commonly. So uh, who knows where it started, really? Uh, I, I would have thought that the planet that has the more energetic environment 
so Venus with more energy coming in from the sun and more radiation causing mutations in DNA once it formed, perhaps that was the cradle and that then life could be transferred to, to Earth. But on the other hand, perhaps it was too heavily radiated. Perhaps it would have been too hostile an environment. I don't know if we can figure out where it started. That is one of the big questions is kind of... Um if, if this is true, then doesn't it just shift the problem of, of where life started? Is it still important to try and work out exactly which planet maybe was, was the, the cradle of life? I'm not sure if it, um, if it matters which one was where life started. But what I think is, is quite interesting is that, I mean, this seems to me to make a lot of sense that in order to develop complex life, and I mean, really, we want, we're interested in complex life, aren't we? We don't really want to go to another planet and just find there's sort of mats of stuff at the bottom of the ocean. It's complex life that has different, different sorts of cells that can evolve intelligence, basically. I mean, it's intelligence we're really after. Well, on, according to, this Venus hypothesis, you have the complexity evolving on your highly radiated planet with lots of mutation going on, but then you need it to transfer to a slightly quieter, more protected planet to allow your life to emerge from the oceans and become intelligent. I mean, we wouldn't have been able to survive that sort of heavy-duty radiation on the surface of, of a planet like Venus with no protection of the magnetic field, our astronauts would find it difficult to survive. We'd have to protect them. So we've got a sort of a two-stage model now. Well, that is requiring a lot more to be in place if you're looking for life around other, other suns, aren't, if you're looking not just for one habitable planet, but two, and also for the life to get from one to the other at that key moment. So it sort of makes the probability seem to get smaller and smaller. And then again, it's also kind of that if, if there was two planets in our solar system where life existed, perhaps chances of it beginning somewhere, even if it's not complex, is, is, is greater. Yes, I, I would agree. Yes, so it's, you, on the one hand, it's good news. But on the other hand, it, if this is what is required for complex life to evolve to intelligent life, it makes it, makes it a tougher ask when you're looking at other suns. Mm. Well... Thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us, Annabelle. That was an absolutely fantastic and interesting look at potentially where life might have started within our solar system. So thank you very much. You're welcome. So that just leaves us to tell you about our next issue, the October issue of BBC Sky Night magazine on sale 22nd of September, um, in which we're going to be showing you how you can watch the Aurora without leaving the country or indeed even your house. Uh, thanks to the wonderful world of auroral live streaming. We're also going to be showing you the best targets you can go and see in the night sky in a very special uh, tour which has been graded for light pollution. So no matter where you live, if you live in a city centre or if you live in the deepest, darkest countryside, there's something for you in that. We're also going to be bringing you the winners of the Insight Astronomy Photographer of the Year 2016 competition. Um, we've all seen the photos already, and actually some of them are absolutely astounding. Amazing this year. But the, really, people have pulled out the stops. Uh, our absolute favourite is um, the people in space one, which I, I can't really tell you any more about because they're not out yet, but it is... Yes, that is a good one. I just remembered which one it was. <laughs> so go definitely go and pick up a copy and check those out. Uh, also, we have the usual sky guide and equipment reviews bringing you the best things to see and the best ways to see it. Now, Ian, 
bonus content in this month. Two massive hits from what I can say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's, there's a pretty cool classic episode uh, in the bonus content this month. Uh, it's from 1973, and there's Patrick Moore... Um, Exploring the moon illusion, uh, which is when, as far as I understand it anyway, it's when the moon appears to be bigger when it's lower in the sky. Have you ever seen it? No. It is terrifying. Um, <laughs> the first time I saw it, I was, I was driving and I looked in the kind of rearview mirror and it was humongous because I just caught it in my peripheral vision and my brain went wrong. It's, it's, you, you know, it's the same size, but it's not, but it is, but it's not. Yeah. It, <laughs> It was huge. It was this uh, kids' TV show I used to watch. And there was one episode where, uh, like, the moon was brought to crash into the planet, and you see it getting bigger. And it was just like that in my brain. It was class. Oh, it was horrifying. Um, um, and yeah, I also spoke to uh, Mike Massimino, um, who was one of the um, astronauts who helped uh, repair Hubble and, and carry out maintenance on it. So, kind of spoke to him about his his marathon spacewalks and um, what what Earth looks like from space. So, brilliant. All right. Well. BBC Sky Night Magazine is available in print and in several digital formats. You can find out more at skynightmagazine.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. This has been Radio Astronomy. We have been BBC Sky Night Magazine and we'll be back in a month's time. <laughs>